This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, in the news, a federal judge rules on the antitrust suit brought by the Department of Justice against the Northeast Alliance between American Airlines and JetBlue. American Airlines flight attendants think the airline's Connect Me app is a bad idea. Breeze Airways is rolling out a new class of service and new routes. Republic Airways will fine pilots who leave early. The Cessna Citation Ascend is unveiled. And the YouTuber who crashed his plane is charged. We also have a number of announcements and shout-outs and great listener feedback on a summer job, keeping track of the commercial flights you take, an archive of past flights, more on the Airbus Baby Bus, and aviation-themed pet names. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 750 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hey, I'm back. Sorry I couldn't be with you last week, but it's great to be back with everyone uh, this week. So, hello. Yeah. So, you missed my um, my correction last episode. Remember when I said that the very first episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast uh, was about the Cirrus jet, the Vision, oh. the Vision jet? Right. And you looked kind of, you had this sort of skeptical look on your face. <laughs> I could see it. Okay. Well, I, I got mixed up. I was wrong. It wasn't the Vision jet. It was the Eclipse jet. Uh, I was going to, as soon as you said that, I was thinking, ah, the Eclipse. Yeah. 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 So sure I just enough. wanted you to know that, you know, your facial expression was correct. I was wrong. <laughs> If, if only our listeners could see my facial expression, we would have 10 times as many listeners. Yeah, probably. Also with us is David Vanderhoof. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hello, everyone. Uh, looking forward to an interesting evening. Lots of, lots of news and lots of um, listener mail, which is always a good thing. Yeah, we got some great topics, great feedback from listeners this time. Uh, also joining us is our main man, Micah. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. And uh, it does look like it's going to be a fun show, even without a guest. That's right. And, of course, if you listened to our last episode, you know that Rob Mark is off on his vacation. Well-deserved, well-earned. Well, maybe not, but he's going to have fun anyway, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, we'll be hearing from him sometime in the future. Well, we can also pick on him, and he won't be able to fight back. So this is great. That's that is great because he's not going to listen to this. You know, he doesn't listen. Because <laughs> why would he? Normally, he's here. All right. Yes, we have some news, some aviation news from the past week. Are you guys ready? Ready from the west. Ready from Delaware. Mainly ready. First story comes from the Point Sky. And there's only one way to introduce the story. Comma, comma, down, doobie, do, down, down. Breaking up is hard to do. Yeah, you've got that right. This is uh, Judge N's American Airlines and JetBlue Alliance says it's anti-competitive. And that's the May 19th, 2023 ruling 
in the antitrust case that was brought by the U.S. Department of Justice against the Northeast Alliance, the NEA, between American Airlines and JetBlue. The federal judge ruled that the alliance, quote, substantially diminishes competition in the domestic market for air travel, end quote, and must end within 30 days. JetBlue, of course, and American are significant competitors in the Boston and New York region, and the judge felt that combining operations stifles competition. The Justice Department had alleged that by code-sharing and collaborating to run a complementary route network through New York and Boston, that the alliance would, quote, eliminate significant competition between American and JetBlue that has led to lower fares and higher quality service for consumers traveling to and from those airports. It was interesting. You know, the airline's defense, it says in the article, centered around the argument that in the 18 months since the alliance began, the cost increases that the DOJ warned about in its initial complaint have failed to materialize. But I don't understand how they could possibly try to argue that way because airline fares have been done nothing but increase and increase and increase. And who's to say that this isn't one of the reasons that, that, did, that that's happened? Yeah, there's a lot of factors going on here. Yeah, the, the dynamics are, are pretty significant, I think, as you're, as you're pointing out, uh, Micah. I took a, a look at the ruling, the actual ruling, and um, we'll put that in the, uh, in the show notes, a link to that in the show notes. And uh, the judge, Sorokin, says that in the first six months of 2020, executives at American Airlines and JetBlue negotiated and signed a first-of-its-kind alliance in which the two carriers essentially agreed to operate as one airline for most of their flights in and out of New York City and Boston. Now, here's kind of the interesting part. Judge wrote, this case turns on what, quote, competition, unquote, means. To the defendants, competition is enhanced if they join forces to unseat a powerful rival. The Sherman Act, however, which is the uh, one of the uh, antitrust acts, the Sherman Act, however, has a different focus. Federal antitrust law is not concerned with making individual competitors larger or more powerful. It aims to preserve the free functioning of markets and foster participation by a diverse array of competitors. Those principles are generally undermined rather than promoted by agreements among horizontal competitors to dispense with competition and cooperate instead. This is precisely what happened here. So the judge, judge felt that, I mean, he, he basically threw out the sort of the foundational argument of the airlines, which is that they needed to combine to compete and the competition would be better for consumers. And the judge says that's not what the Sherman Antitrust Act talks about, making you stronger in order to compete against others, that's not allowable under the, under the, uh, the act. Yeah, I think in legal terms, what the judge said is, are you out of your mind? Yes. And he also didn't like the expert witnesses. Um, apparently, a number of the expert witnesses uh, for, the, uh, for the airlines were employed by the airlines. So that didn't really suggest these were credible unbiased expert witnesses. And uh, as for the expert witnesses who were not employed by those airlines, well, the judge thought that they didn't really have the um, 
the credentials or their arguments were were flawed, you know, and not independent. So we'll see what happens next. Uh, I think uh, I think American has said that they were going to appeal. I believe, and JetBlue hasn't uh, publicly stated, at least as of this point in time, what's going to happen next. I think JetBlue needs to be very careful because they have a a planned acquisition of Spirit right now, and uh, this could actually help them with that acquisition of Spirit because they've been broken up with the the code sharing with American. And so I think if if they're working to try to continue that partnership with American, that behind the scenes JetBlue is saying, you make the argument, we'll just kind of sit here so that we'll see what happens with Spirit, which will benefit us both if we get back together. And some argue that, and some argue that this may negatively impact the acquisition of, of Spirit by JetBlue, um, because this might be an indicator of, uh, you know, sort of the resistance from the government to cons- further consolidation. So, I mean, this may be a signal that the government may not be very amenable to to other kinds of consolidation, but... That trial doesn't begin until mid-October because, of course, the Justice Department has, has sued to stop JetBlue's acquisition of Spirit Airlines. We live in interesting times. Some of the articles you read on this say that everybody was surprised at how this went. And a few people are saying, yeah, maybe I was surprised, but we shouldn't have been based on the logic that the judge has, uh, has used in, in making this ruling. Do you guys think it's going to be good for the airline flyers, for the consumers? Um, I have a rhetorical question. Is anything ever good for the airline drivers and consumers? It just just seems like things are always stacked against us. Do you think this will be better than if if it were to continue? Tough opinions, I know. Yeah, yeah. I I, I can't come up with any logic that uh, points in one direction or the other in terms of answering that. I don't know. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, speaking of American Airlines, so uh, the American Airlines Union is very upset with uh, the airline over a mobile app that's been developed. Now, uh, if you go back in time a year or so, American Airlines uh, had announced a partnership with Microsoft to use Microsoft technology to create what they said were better, more connected experiences for customers and American Airlines team members. And in the, uh, the announcement that came out in, in May 2022, anyway, Americans said that they were going to use the Microsoft Azure platform as its preferred cloud platform for its airline applications. So now fast forward to uh, today, to May 2023, and the Association of Professional Flight Attendants that represents American Airlines flight attendants, they take issue with the airline's Connect Me app. And the Connect Me app is one of the things that came out of this partnering with, with Microsoft. And it's, a, it's an internal messaging app. And it's mandatory that flight attendants use that. It's, I guess it's based on or it works through Microsoft Teams. And in theory, it sounds pretty good. Flight attendants could, uh, with the app, communicate with gate agents and pilots and even engineers during the pre-boarding process, during the boarding process. And they could get all this information through their phones. Previously, that 
communication was only available at the Gates desktop computer. So it sounds, I mean, it sounds pretty good. But the flight attendants don't like it. The union says, well, first of all, they didn't have any input into the use of this app. It's called Connect Me. But the big thing is they said that interruptions through the app are a major distraction. The union says there's, quote, a constant barrage. Does this sound familiar? A constant barrage of texts which prioritizes other departments' objectives over safety, which should be first and foremost. Um, they say that the uh, an unintended consequence of this mandate to use the Connect Me app um, has uh, resulted in harassment by agents and customer service managers. Apparently, trolls exist on... <laughs> on the Connect Me app as much as they do on Twitter or, you know, anywhere else. And that it's a violation of the company's work environment policy. So the union wants to give, uh, wants the company to give flight attendants the option to uh, revert back to communicating with gate agents the old-fashioned way, face-to-face. Are you kidding? (laughs) I mean, really? People talk to each other? No, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Send me a text. That's it. That's it. Well, I'm very sympathetic. It sounds like the poor flight attendants are trying to do their job, and if they're constantly getting uh, notifications on the, on the phone, it's like how distracting would that be from actually getting things done? The other problem, I think, is when you respond, You know, if you're going to have to type in the response, that takes a really long time. It would so, be so much faster if you were actually talking to a person. You know, the trouble with text is you know, it's great for kind of yes or no things, but you know, things that are more subjective and you've got multiple alternatives, it's like you know, you really need to talk those things out. Absolutely. And can you imagine as a passenger boarding a plane and trying to find your seat, needing some assistance, and, and there's the flight attendant standing there with their phone with, you know, what appears to be texting. It's like, what are you doing? I need your help. Get off your damn phone and help me. You know, they, they're going to think it's, uh, you know, a personal business or something. It sounds like a typical information systems employee or person coming up with a solution uh, to a problem that doesn't exist and doing so without talking to the people that are experiencing any issues. All in the name of efficiency. We're going to save $4.2 billion over the next 6.8 years if we implement this. Yeah, the key thing, if it's true that the union didn't have any input into this system or managing this system, uh, I mean, that's the that, there's the cardinal sin of uh, implementing an IT system right there is not involving the people who are going to use the system in the process. Uh, that's yeah. that's almost guaranteed failure. Exactly. It, it's so typical of uh, when you see it with software, when there are updates for the sake of updates, not because it's going to change anything or make anything better, but it's being updated because it's time to update it. It's not making anything better and it's just making it more difficult to try to relearn it. Uh, I can just imagine what the flight attendants must be going through with this uh, <laughs> newfound um, technical capability. But you know what I found interesting about the article? I always like to read down toward the bottom, and it says that uh, in, in addition to their cloud partnership, the companies, this is Microsoft and uh, American Airlines, are deepening their relationship to support Microsoft employee travel through, highly prefer- through a highly preferred partnership with American, Micros- with American. Microsoft employees will receive new enhanced benefits when they choose American or its alliance partners for their business travel. Wait a minute. Where did this whole program come from and why? Okay. You, you got to wonder. 
Yeah, and that's not unusual for two companies to sort of, you know, I'll, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, you know, you have something that, that we need, uh, in, in this case, the Microsoft technology and the, you know, the whole cloud thing. And uh, the airline has something that Microsoft needs, seats on an airplane. So, you, you know, you work out a deal. It, it kind of makes sense. But doesn't it sound like Microsoft said, hey, we've got something to meet your need and you have something to meet our need. So here, we're going to give this to you. Do this for us. As opposed to Americans saying, okay, let's come up with, you know, seems rather one-sided. Yeah, I was going to say in terms of corporations trying to benefit each other, there's American and JetBlue. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, there's a classic case of working together to uh, mutual benefit. It sounds like that was working out better for them than this is working out for the flight attendants. All right. Well, hey, Micah, there's lots going on at Breeze Airways these days. I'm seeing all kinds of things, um, new features, new class of service. Well, uh, maybe a new class of service, uh, some new routes, all kinds of things going on. Yeah, Breeze has um, has done a whole lot. And recently they came up to Portland, Maine. And what uh, is happening is that they are starting new routes, uh, at least to Portland and to other places. And they're starting it with a new first-class service. Uh, they've always had three levels of service, and the nice, nicer, and nicest. And nicest is their first class. And now they're announcing a uh, another version of it, and uh, they're calling it... Um, Oh, what are they calling Breeze it? Breeze Ascent. Breeze Ascent, that's right, which is pretty much identical to nicest, and it's uh, a first-class seat that's uh, 20.5 inches wide, which is very wide compared to uh, economy seats, which are normally 17 to 18 inches, and 39 inches of seat pitch. Boy, I sound like Dan, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're going to be offering complimentary drinks, and... I was fortunate enough to uh, see their new A220 this week, which I'll talk about a little bit later, and I think it's going to be a great service. Yeah, and you mentioned the A220. This uh, this service is for the A220, not for their, uh, as I understand it, for their uh, Embraer uh, jets. This is for the, the A220, the airliner previously known as the C-Series, for those of you who've been around for a while. There's some other changes, too. Uh, onboard Wi-Fi is coming, again, to the A220 fleet. They're going to use the Viasat satellite internet service. And price hasn't been announced yet. How much you're going to charge for it hasn't been announced yet. But Breeze has said that the the rollout is expected to be complete by early 2024. So I guess that's um, over the next 12 months or so. But, yeah, in terms of the new routes, um, I mean, there's a lot. They've added a lot of... Uh, a lot of new routes, um, you know, kind of all across their uh, their network. They remind me, and I think for a good reason, they remind me of JetBlue because they were founded by the same guy, David Nealman. And um, well, Cranky, who is always cranky and has to make a comment on it, he what they're they're offering a really a nicer form of of low class service, and what they're describing it themselves as the uh, instead of a ULCC, it's an NLCC, the nice low cost carrier, which <laughs> Cranky says doesn't exist, but. Actually, it should, and I think that it it did with JetBlue, which became just a regular, you know, cost carrier, just a, a normal flyer. Although this service is very good, and I think that uh, Breeze is going to go along those same lines. Their prices are lower, quality of service looks really good, and uh, you'll probably hear more about that next week. 
Yes, yes, and we'll talk about that. The uh, the article that uh, describes uh, many of these changes, uh, besides the cranky flyer article, is uh, is something from aeroexplorer.com, which is a e r o x p l o r e r dot com. And I didn't know much about that, but uh, I, I took a look at their website. And uh, Aero Explorer was previously the Explorer blog. And it's it's kind of an interesting hybrid. It's an aviation photography and news source. And so they provide industry news, but also an airframe photography database that right now has more than 30,000 photos in it. So uh, on the on the uh, on the photos side, the, the sort of the plane spotting side, they have a map uh, that you can browse through, and it shows airports. And if you click on an airport, then you can see the spotting photos from that airport. And there's a way for you to, if you're the ph- a photographer, a way for you to upload photos to this and so forth. Um, so it's kind of uh, interesting. You know, again, a blend of photos, plane spotting, and news. Um, but interestingly, the website lists some positions that are available. They have positions available in the screening team, and those are that's part of the process for screening photos that are submitted to make sure they you know meet certain qualifications, uh, the requirements of the of the site. But um, there are a number of other teams that have openings available. There's a writing team, public relations team, and a design team. So yeah, take a look at it. It's uh, aeroexplorer with an X dot com. You can see on their uh, on their webpage where they have these these positions available. The only thing well, I, I would say that especially if you're a woman and have any interest in doing this, I recommend that you uh, check it out. Because when you look at the when you look at the photos of the team members, it's all men. It's like oh, it's like all men. It's like no women. So uh, yeah, I think they need a little bit of uh, diversity, perhaps uh, on a gender basis. But it, anyway, it's an interesting site. Check it out. All right, Republic Airways. So uh, Max Trescott, if you're a pilot uh, joining Republic, I guess you better know what you've signed up for going in. Yeah, you really want to watch out. I mean, this is really a fascinating story from simpleflying.com. It says Republic Airways to issue $100,000 fine if pilots quit within the first three years. That's that's a heck of a lot of money, especially if, if the company, uh, you know, well, I, I'm sure their rationale is we've done a lot of training. Uh, a lot of training to me would be if you got your private and your instrument and your commercial getting trained on a particular, you know, airplane to be, uh, it probably doesn't feel like it's equivalent to $100,000. But they say that uh, because of the ongoing pilot shortage in the U.S., uh, this is this this new part of the employment contract is you know, necessary for them to uh, you know help retain uh, pilots. And it says in the agreement details that pilots must stay with the regional airline for at least three years. After one year, pilots have the opportunity to graduate to the captain position, but will need to fly as much as they can in order to do so. Uh, new hires are committing to being a captain for two years. 
pilots who voluntarily break the agreement and leave the airline before the three-year mark are subject to a $100,000 fine. Uh, and here's the most bizarre part. If the pilot resigns before the three-year mark, they're not allowed to work for any other competing airline within a year. <laughs> now, I, I know that the non-compete agreements are getting a lot of attention, and that actually might not be enforceable. But, I mean, <laughs> what poor airline uh, employee is going to have the money to uh, take that to court? Um, they also say that a first officer who advances and becomes a captain within a year will face uh, low seniority and may have to commute to their base, which could be less than ideal. Uh, additionally, um, <laughs> the airline <laughs> says that this isn't actually a penalty. This $100,000 is actually liquidated damages. I don't know if that makes it any more palatable <laughs> to those people who are being billed $100,000. Anyway, the uh, Teamsters Union, which represents the airline pilots, has filed a grievance good for them. That's all I can say. This is part of what unions, you know, are for is to step in when things are a little on the egregious side. This to me feels a little on the egregious side, but Hey, that's just my opinion. Um, anyway, uh, there is no word about whether or not Republic is going to uh, reevaluate its employment contract. Uh, and if the airline refuses to, the team series had said they're threatening litigation to, uh, settle it. Um, anyway, this is just this is kind of unusual to me. This this <laughs> seems like a rather odd way to uh, try and retain employees. You know, Republic is a regional that flies for um, you know for all three majors: United, Delta, and American. And uh, a lot of regionals have been closing down recently. Um, it's just uh, something that, that that is starting to happen. But what I'm really curious about, and, and Max, I think you would be able to be the best one to comment on this, is with the pilot shortage that everyone is talking about, why would anybody choose to fly for Republic with all these horrible contract requirements? You know, I was wondering the same thing. I, I will tell you that there's kind of an interesting um, twist, and I don't know how this really plays into this, but I was traveling around the, the country last week uh, doing training in a vision jet. One of our stops was uh, Indianapolis, which is, I believe, the home of Lyft Academy, which is uh, owned, I believe, by Republic. Uh, now, Lyft Academy cost, according to this website here, $97,000. Republic offers a $15,000 subsidy, making the training just $82,000. I mean, there may be people who are, you know, part of Lyft and who are flowing directly to Republic and may, you know, now find themselves you know, part, of, part of that uh, new employment contract. And, you know, if Republic helps subsidize some of their early training, um, you know, both sides may feel that, uh, all right, this is a fair part of that bargain. I kind of... Um can understand sort of the, I mean, the basic underlying reasons for for doing something. You, you, yeah. you know, you don't want to. You would make a big investment in training your employees, and to have them just take that and run, it doesn't seem quite quite right. It doesn't seem quite ethical to me. Just as, you know, on the employee side, but from the employer side, it's it's kind of a problem. But these provisions are, I think, just go way, way too far. And I, I agree that <laughs> with with uh, pilot shortages, you know, why would you sign up for, for this? I, I mean, if you've got an option to go work for another company, why would you agree to the, something as, uh, as potentially onerous as this? It just seems like it's gone too far. 
It makes sense to me if indeed Republic is training the pilot and saying, we're going to invest with you and we are going to train you and we're not going to charge you for any of this training. And as a payback, we, you know, we will pay you. You're under our contract. And as a payback, you're signing up with us for three years, similar to the military. And I kind of get that. But I don't think this is saying that. I'm really dubious that this is going to, uh, to stand. I think the reaction to this is going to be too negative. I mean, it already has been, as you said, Max, from the Teamsters, from the union. I, I don't think this is going to last. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I think part of it uh, really <laughs> it depends upon what's the response from Republic competitors. You know, do they go, wow, this is a great idea. We need to start implementing this. And if that were to happen, because the dynamics in the industry, you know, said, hey, this really is the right solution for retaining pilots, then it could stick. But I have a feeling that the competitors are probably looking at this going, whoa, glad, glad we didn't do that. Because yeah. <laughs> this may provide them a bit of an uh, incentive, or, you know, in being able to ret- attract and retain employees to, to them. Yeah. But as you alluded to, earlier, Max, both the Justice Department and the Department of Labor have been looking into non-compete agreements and eliminating those. And I have a feeling that might move forward and that would certainly kill a good portion of this. But buyer beware. If you're a, you know, a, a, a budding airline pilot, it pays to understand all of the details of uh, any contract that uh, you sign. And frankly, maybe worth uh, you know, having, you know, paying for a lawyer to spend, uh, you know, a little bit of time reviewing that. Because boy, you know, you wouldn't want to find out something like this, you know, after the fact and find out, oh wow, now I'm. Now I'm stuck here longer than I had planned to be. And it, I saw something interesting. I think we talked about it on the show here. Uh, they had an issue uh, in the Army where a number of pilots have just recently found out that, oh, I'm, <laughs> I have to stay in the Army for three additional years because something was not calculated correctly. And, you know, that, that's just a major disruption to, to people's lives. Yeah, it sure is. But it is an agreement. So any agreement that you sign, you really, like you say, you need to understand it. Getting into it. Now, I would also hope that the airline might make exceptions. I could imagine there could be certain cases where because of a situation beyond the control of the employee, they have to leave for some reason, some kind of a family issue. or I mean, I, there could be all kinds of reasons why a, a pilot might not be able to fulfill all the terms of this agreement. And I would hope that Republic would have some kind of a process for being able to to grant exceptions. And uh, if that doesn't exist, then that just makes us even worse in my mind. Yeah, you failed your medical, so you owe us $100,000. Right, yeah, something like that, exactly. That's a great example. All right. From Flying Magazine, Textron Aviation unveil, unveils, unveils Cessna Citation Ascend in Geneva. So, Max, what's a Cessna Citation Ascend? Well, this was totally new to me. Uh, this came out uh, Monday morning, and it came out at, in Europe at uh, the uh, European Business Aviation Convention and Expo, so uh, eBase in uh, in Geneva. And this is the fifth generation of the Citation 560XL family. 
Now, this family goes back uh, 25 years. They've shipped uh, 1,100 of uh, the various versions, which started out as the Excel, the XLS, the XLS Plus, the XLS Gen 2. I, I guess they decided it was time to, to change names, and so that's why they've gone to the uh, Ascend. Uh, a lot of their big jets uh, do have uh, you know, names now rather than uh, numbers. So, for example, they've got the Longitude and the Latitude and things like that. Um, so this is essentially a, a refresh. Uh, so $16.725 million. Uh, so the kind of capability on this is, let's see, I think it's got the uh, the Garmin G5000, which is virtually identical to the G3000 in the uh, in the Vision Jet. And I'm sure some people go, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, it's different. Well, the difference is that uh, for aircraft, I believe up to 6,000 pounds, I'm not sure the exact cutoff, you have different certifications. So I think the 3,000 is for, for lighter aircraft and the 5,000 meets the, the different um, the FAA certification requirements for for heavier aircraft, but many, many, many of the features overlap. This does include some new features, such as Garmin's 3D exocentric view airport diagrams. What does that mean? I, I know. I had to look up exocentric when I first saw this <laughs> article, and uh, I didn't spend a whole time looking at it. Uh, but I did uh, search on images and diagrams, and one of the diagrams showed two different ways of projecting it, one of which was kind of like the, the rear camera view that you might get in some simulator programs where it's as if you're you know, behind the jet kind of watching you know, it. So anyway. I'm not sure exactly uh, what what this projection looks like. It is currently available in other high-end uh, systems, such as the uh, Honeywell Primus Epic uh, Avionics, which is in much more expensive jets. Uh, so I guess this gives you a different way of kind of visualizing the runway and taxiway signs and obstacle symbols and buildings and uh, things like that. So So that's good. The range, uh, 1,900 uh, nautical miles at high-speed cruise, 2,100 nautical miles at long-range cruise. So pretty good uh, range. Um, so I think this is going to be very attractive to uh, operators who've been uh, operating the uh, the XLS uh, site, uh, series in the past. Looks like a you know a nice. Uh, I'm not sure if a refresh is the right word, but you know certainly it's the the next generation. There's some other changes too. I noticed the APU now is approved for unattended operation. So I guess that means you don't have to have somebody, a pilot in the cockpit all the time while the APU is running. I guess that's what that means. Um, There's some interior changes uh, with the seats, more acoustic insulation, uh, insulation, an upgraded IFE system, and those uh, electrically actuated window shades, right, the kind that go translucent or, or opaque, that's pretty cool. There's also a newer model, slightly newer model, uh, Pratt & Whitney Canada engine. The XLS Gen 2 used the PW545C engine, and uh, the uh, Ascend uses the 545D engine. So you get a little bit more thrust, like 1%. But the uh, the high-pressure core is is more efficient uh, some other changes, they, they put an exhaust gas mixer on it. That gives uh, better fuel efficiency and, and less noise. Um, it's not clear to me whether it's an, it's an improved mixer or they put a mixer on for the first time. If, if it's a first time, I, I mean, I'm surprised that it didn't 
previously have a mixer on it because it's, you know, it's basically a piece of sheet metal that's folded into a, what do you call that shape? You know what a mixer looks like, right? In the, on the tail of a jet engine, sort of a fluted kind of uh, kind of design, but it's just a sheet metal piece, basically. Is this? Uh, and I'm just trying to think. Is is this what's required if you've got, for example, a high pipe bass engine where some of the air bypasses the core of the engine and then rejoins at the end? Is that what the mixer is? And it mixes those two, it, it, right? right it, okay. it mixes okay. the colder, more ambient air, or closer closer to ambient air with the uh, with the exhaust gas. Right, and so you get much better fuel efficiency, uh, but I'm trying to think. Uh, typically, the trade-off is going to be what lower, lower speeds, I guess, than if you didn't know. have the high by, high bypass ratio. You get less noise as well. It, it really mm, affects okay. the noise. A lot of the noise, as you might think, comes from that exhaust. So, lots and lots of changes. It's got USB-C ports all over the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to buy one. I didn't notice that. Now I'm now I'm going to buy one. Yeah, it's cool. But how many cup holders? <laughs> I know they didn't say if there's any change in the uh, number, placement, or design of the cup holders, David. All right. So yeah, pretty cool. So now you know. I look for the USB C. Yeah. So that's my selection criteria: the USB C and David's is the number of cup holders. So, <laughs> hey, David, I cut I cut you off. David, go ahead. No, no, no. no. I was just going to say. Yeah. I mean, I thought everybody. Counts cup holders either. <laughs> uh, one more item, and um, this is an update. You all remember the the video we talked about? I think this was um, was it last year, about a year ago. This was of uh, a man who was uh, flying his plane, which happened, which just happened to be festooned with uh, video cameras, as as was he with a selfie stick and a parachute. And the story was that uh, there, there was some problem with the aircraft, so he bailed out with his parachute and filmed the whole thing. And Max, I remember when we talked about this, there was some skepticism over whether the the whole thing, whether any of this was legitimate. Was wasn't this the the, the they were transferring pilots? Wasn't no, this no, the that was dual- something no. else. That was, okay. a that was yeah, yeah. That's a different one. Now this the <laughs> there was almost immediate skepticism from people who spotted things such as the fire extinguisher that was underneath his pants leg, and the fact that the cockpit door was cracked open before the engine, uh, you know, allegedly stopped working. Uh, but this particular story comes from Justice.gov, the U.S. Justice Department. Anytime we have a story from them, it's a pretty bad deal for the people involved. It says Santa. <laughs> Santa Barbara County man who deliberately crashed airplane for YouTube video admits to obstructing federal investigation. And I think most people know that it's not the crime that gets you. It's the cover-up. In this particular case, the cover-up is is rather extraordinary. Uh, This YouTuber pilot has agreed to plead guilty to a felony charge of obstructing a federal investigation by deliberately destroying the wreckage of an airplane that he intentionally crashed. Now, this is the first that I had learned that he deliberately destroyed the the wreckage says he's agreed to plead guilty to one count of destruction and concealment with the intent to obstruct a crime. And it carries a statutory maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison. Now I saw a separate story that said he will get a minimum of two years, which is pretty severe, uh, you know, punishment for, for <laughs> trying to get views on, uh, on YouTube, uh, according to the plea agreement. And this also surprised me. 
He was an experienced pilot and skydiver who had secured a sponsorship from a company that sold various products, including a wallet that he had agreed to promote in the YouTube video that he was going to post. Uh, So uh, back in November of 2021, he took off in his airplane from Lompoc City Airport on a solo flight headed allegedly to uh, Mammoth Lakes, California. He didn't reach his destination, but instead he planned to eject from the aircraft and video the whole thing. Prior to takeoff, he mounted, as you mentioned, several video cameras. He also had a parachute, a video camera, and a selfie stick. Hmm, okay. And then about 35 minutes after taking off while flying over the Los Padres National Forest, he ejected from the plane and videoed videoed himself parachuting to the ground. Now, here's the amazing thing. He hiked to the location of the wreck to recover the data in the video recording of his cameras because you need that. Two days later, he informed the NTSB about the plane crash. They launched an investigation and told him that he was responsible preserving the wreckage, which he agreed to help them with. Three days later, the FAA launched their own investigation. But in the following weeks, he lied to investigators that he did not know the wreckage location. Whereas, in fact, on December the 10th, so what, a couple weeks later, he and a friend flew by helicopter. They pulled the wreckage out. They transported it to a place where they then loaded it on a trailer, which he used his pickup truck to move the wreckage back to a hangar at Lompoc City Airport. And here's the amazing thing. This part almost sounds like a, uh, you know, a mafia type uh, movie. Uh, <laughs> he, he then cut up and destroyed the aircraft wreckage and over the course of several days deposited the detached parts into various trash bins <laughs> at the airport and elsewhere. I mean, does this not sound like... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he uh, he then, uh, about two weeks after that, uploaded his video titled I Crashed My Airplane, which included a promotion for the wallet. And anyway, he's apparently admitted in his plea agreement that, that he did this to make money from the, the video. So all I can say is, ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> <laughs> there are probably better ways to get views on YouTube. Oh, and his license was revoked in April of 2022. No surprise. Ah, uh, yeah. There's the one year ago that I was uh, thinking of. Yes, <laughs> he doesn't have his license anymore. But hey, I mean, who among us hasn't done something foolish when we were young, right? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this, this, this goes so far beyond reasonable. These people who do this stuff, um, what was he thinking? Well, yeah, I mean... It, He's not going to get caught. I mean, crashing an airplane kind of serious. It's yeah. and and God knows how much the insurance policy was going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he should get more than two years just for destroying that aircraft. Just for just, just for letting that go. It was a beautiful airplane. Well, I, I think most people are probably happy to hear that. Yes, justice is catching up with this uh, gentleman because I'm sure that there have been things like this in the past that people may have occasionally gotten away with, but it's just, it's not fair. I mean, because this raises the cost of flying because of insurance claims. And gosh, I mean, where does this cycle of uh, the quest for the greatest number of views end? I mean, I think of all the, you know, the, the foolish people that hop over the fence at the Grand Canyon so that they can take a selfie of themselves right next to the edge of the canyon. You know, sometimes these people die doing this silly stuff. I mean, it, or the person geez. in Yellowstone uh, Yellowstone uh, Park that puts a, the kid on the ba- sleeping bear, takes a picture of it, but the bear rolls over. This happened, you know, and the kid's crushed. Whoa, you know, God. yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, I mean this this quest for views and and for the most number of followers. There's there's certainly a lot of negative things that come out of it. Did he make an insurance claim on his aircraft? Do we know? Don't know. Because boy, wouldn't it be great if they can still get him for insurance fraud on top of all this? <laughs> yeah. If he did make a claim, yeah, for sure. There's a there's a case there. All right, what's up with the geeks? David, have you got something for us? Since we were filled with news, I figured I'd take my little for to, to suggest reading an article from my favorite website, The Drive. Um, they publish, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, the biggest military news over the last couple of weeks was during the G7 conference, the president of the United States said he was willing to give F-16s to Ukraine. Ukraine has wanted F-16s now from almost the beginning of the conflict. But it's not as easy as you think to give F-16s to Ukraine. Besides the the issue of pilot training, um, the guys over at the um, war zone, which is part of the drive, went through and there's not a lot of F-16s out there that are readily available to go to Ukraine. Um, they do an analysis of what NATO countries have F-16s, who has them, how many they have, what their status is. One of the things that I was thinking about when we kept talking about this was there are so many F-16s in the world, but they're all different levels of internal, you know, you can't do a rainbow squadron of F-16s because each country's F-16s are a little different and there's no real standardization on the F-16. The F-16 is still in production, but it's been in production since the 70s. Block 52 F-16s are far different than um, Block 15s, which a lot of the NATO countries fly, even though they've been upgraded over time. So I, uh, if you're really interested in what it's going to take to send Ukraine um, F-16s, I really suggest reading this article. It's pretty in-depth and well well explaining the situation about sending military hardware to a country that's not used to dealing with that military hardware. I'm not saying the Ukrainian pilots aren't capable, but at minimum, it would be, they were saying, 69 hours of training. That's for someone who's familiar. That would be like a pilot who is used to flying Western aircraft and then going into um, into the F sixteen. You know, it it's it's a far cry when you're used to flying Su twenty sevens and Mig twenty nines. Ukraine pilots are quite capable, but it's still going to be a very long time. That even though we've said. We're willing to give the F-16s to Ukraine or have other other nations give F-16s to Ukraine. It's going to be a long time before those uh, F-16s see combat, either f aircraft from the United States or um, from our NATO allies. Some of our NATO allies, like Greece and Turkey, probably won't even part with theirs because they're so important to their own defenses, so... Very good article, I think, given military given the military is so much Ukraine, but this is a huge topic about what's involved with 
delivering a 21st century um, fourth generation fighter to a non-NATO country. David, is that how um, at the end of the article it said that uh, the United Kingdom isn't an F-16 operator but says it will still provide relevant training? Is that relevant training? Is that what you were describing in terms of teaching these uh, uh, the Ukrainian pilots how to fly a Western jet? It's tough to say what the British will be training them on. Belgium would is the number one candidate for training the pilots on the F-16. Um, Great Britain might be able to train them on weapon systems like the Sky Shadow, etc., and give them time in Western aircraft. But unless Great Britain starts handing over tornadoes, which would be equivalent to or or uh, Eurofighters, um, you know, and, and um, typhoons, I should say, not ty- um, typhoons, they can train them. Uptrain them on on what it's like to fly a NATO aircraft, but to be more specific, it would have to be either Norway or Belgium or Holland, or excuse me, the Kingdom of the Netherlands, um, as or the United States as primary people who are their primary aircraft is the F sixteen. Yeah, I think probably a lot of people who are unfamiliar with all the issues, you know, here. Uh, giving Ukraine F-16s and, and figure that'd be like me giving Micah my Subaru. You know, it, it's not like that at all. <laughs> yeah. And part of that misunderstanding is the fact that we actually have deployed high technology to them. They We've talked about the Patriot missile systems that are defi- defining Kiev um, or the um, main battle tanks that that the various NATO countries, the United States included, have provided. But those weapon systems are um, not easier, but they're more readily available to do the training. Um, so it, it, it'll, be, it'll be an interesting thing that now that the United States has said, okay, because bottom line is it's a United States aircraft. So we have a final, we have really the final say on who gets it exported? And, and Max, um, you can talk about this a little bit further. But um, we do have say if any country wants to send them to Ukraine, we have final say because they are aircraft made in the United States. And those agreements are um, pretty much standard throughout the, throughout, the United, throughout the world. Whereas, you know, if you want to transfer, if you want to transfer F-16s to say, um, another country from your stocks, you need to have um, authorization from the United States for a weapons transfer. Right. It's all a uh, you know technology export that we retain control over. All right, Max Prescott. We got all excited last week when you weren't here. <laughs> and no, it was not because you weren't here. No, no. Oh, wasn't that's me. what I thought you meant. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. I guess I wasn't clear. Yeah, because you had a very interesting solo. You, in fact, you uh, you had a video of that. Yeah, so this is uh, this has been a, a a big major event for me. Uh, back in late December on Aviation News Talk, episode two fifty seven, I interviewed Dr. Victor Vogel about the challenges that pilots face as they get older. And one of the things he talked about was to help stem you know mental decline. That it makes sense for folks to take on you know, new projects, learn new things, take on new challenges. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, I've always wanted to get a glider rating. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something 
something really hard. <laughs> and literally within a few days of that episode, I decided I'm going to take helicopter lessons. <laughs> and I didn't tell a lot of people about it. I just kind of thought, you know, this is something I'm going to do for me because it will be a fun challenge, not because it's practical or because that I have any particular, you know, use for it or plan to teach or anything like that. So I spent literally the next month just reading like crazy, uh, which I think is a great way to start uh, a new pilot certificate. Also watched a number of uh, YouTube videos. And then I took my first lesson in very late January in a Robinson R44. And part of what I knew I would probably get out of this was, you know, reliving and, and having some empathy for my clients and the, uh, the tribulations and trials that they go through in flight training. Uh, some of those, for example, would be having flight instructors who leave midway through their training, uh, which is pretty common because I would say the majority of flight instructors are building time to move on to other jobs. And so it's not unusual for people to find that they've got multiple flight instructors because, you know, their flight instructor left. And, and indeed, already I've seen a couple of the people that I've flown with have, have moved on. I mean, other things that are common lessons that get canceled either because of weather, get canceled because of maintenance, because CFRs aren't available. So I have been reliving all of those things, plus having to wrap my brain around something that's totally new. Um, anyway, the FAA requires 20 hours to solo in a Robinson R44, which is what I've been doing some training in. It's the only helicopter besides the R22 where they actually mandate the minimum number of hours that you have to have before solo. So about 10 days ago, where I had 19.3 uh, hours, my uh, CFI was planning to uh, solo me until he counted up the hours and said, oh, you don't quite have enough. It's not going to happen today. And then the uh, the following time we met, the winds were just a little on the strong side. Though, to my credit, I flew with him all day, and he never touched the control. So that was kind of you know gratifying to see. Okay, I can handle a little wind. But I'm happy to say about 10 days ago, uh, the 21st flight with a little over 21 hours, I soloed a Robinson R44 helicopter at age 66. <laughs> and so it was just, uh, it felt great. Uh, and interestingly, I soloed 50 years ago. Uh, and so <laughs> it's you know, back in, what, 73 not exactly 50 years to the day, but, you know, it was 50 years ago. Uh, and I decided ahead of time I'd do something a little bit fun. And so when I, I was ready to take off, I called the tower and I said, you know, request takeoff, student pilot first solo. And I have never used the student pilot call sign before uh, because it's not required for use, but it was just kind of fun throwing that in. Um, and so what I, a couple of things that I've found is, you know, I thought that flying helicopters was you know, going to be harder than flying an airplane. I don't think it is. I think it's just that it's different. Uh, I mean, very different. If you look at the number of hours required, it's the same. Uh, for me, the mechanics of flying the helicopter were significantly easier than I thought. Uh, what was more difficult was the, the ground theory, which is far more extensive than I thought, and which is just totally different, especially from aerodynamic standpoint. Uh, and so I spend a lot of time reviewing that stuff. And it's just, uh, that, that's probably the most challenging uh, stuff. Uh, and then what was interesting is right after I soloed, they said, you know, we don't have an examiner in this local area, but there is one coming at the end of the month. And, uh, you know, do you want us to put you down on the list for him to do a check ride with? And initially I said, oh, sure, go ahead and do that. Now, I was then going to be gone for a week, which was last week. And that meant that I would have one week to get in nine more hours of solo, plus all the preparation for my check ride. And I thought, 
hmm, you know what? This doesn't sound like fun. Sounds like a grueling pace. I'd be flying every day, sometimes twice a day. And I called him back after a couple days and said, nope, I'm just going to do a more measured pace. And part of it is the only reason I'm doing this is for fun. So I didn't want to you know, put tremendous pressure on me to try and meet this artificial you know, deadline. But I also felt like if I had taken the check right at the end of this month, that I would feel like I was a very marginal pilot who just barely passed his check ride. And I don't want to be that guy. I want to, I want to be someone who feels like, yeah, I've trained kind of methodically. I'm competent. And I actually feel like I deserve to pass that check ride. So I'm going to just kind of take it nice and slow and you know, try and uh, you know build some skills. But all I can say is it has been probably the most fun thing I have done in, in decades. And I encourage anybody, try something new. You know, go out there and try something totally new. It's a fun challenge. Can you tell us a little bit more about the biggest challenges being, you know, such a, a long-time fixed-wing operator switching to, to rotary wing? You know, you talked about the, the ground operations and things like that. Could you sort of explain it? What what were the differences? What what really caught you up? Well, let me talk to you a little bit about the kind of the mechanics. One of the things that really caught my attention was after the first or second lesson, I was reading through the, the R44 POH, and they have a section, section 10 called safety notices. And there's one in there, which essentially says, uh, airplane pilots sometimes are overconfident. And, uh, you know, there have been a number of uh, fatal accidents with overconfident uh, airplane pilots. And I thought, whoa, and I, I kind of read through it. And, you know, one of the things makes total sense. They said, for example, if you know, you have a, a, you know, a bird that you need to avoid. Airplane reaction would be push forward on that thing in your hand, which would be the yoke at an airplane or the cyclic in a helicopter. And that's exactly the wrong thing uh, in a helicopter. There uh, with the R-44, if you go forward suddenly in the cyclic, you're going to have what's called mass bumping, which uh, essentially is going to destroy your helicopter in a fraction of a second. Uh, and so there, our learned response in the airplane is, fatal if we if we transfer that into the helicopter our response has to be to lower the collective rapidly to uh, you know reduce the power without putting ourselves in kind of a you know, a low G situation where we've, or high G, whatever, whatever the rapid forward of the cyclic is going to be. Um, and I think the other thing is that there seem to be kind of far more emergency kinds of things to, to train for. Uh, and so, you know, the basic traffic patterns, yeah, that comes pretty quickly, but holy cow, there just seem to be more ways to get in trouble <laughs> in a helicopter. And so I, I think that's probably the, the big challenge there is, you know, just being prepared to, to handle the the different uh, kinds of problems you could encounter. Is there a big difference in the the touch on the controls between a helicopter and a and, and fixed wing? Yeah, a lot of people will say on the cyclic, you're not moving it as much as you're applying pressure. I've shot video of every flight, and what I can I can actually see the the movement of my hand. And what's really kind of interesting, it, it's exactly what one of my early instructors said. He said, when you're moving in a certain direction, you're moving in that direction, and then you're kind of rapidly returning to where you were. And I see that. You know, I see my hand making a correction left and then bringing it back to the right to where it was originally. And that's not something I kind of anticipated. I kind of thought, oh, you want to go to the left? You just move it to the left and hold it there. No, you do that. You're going to just keep going <laughs> there. So, yeah, it's a very, very different move. They are small, um, but to me, it seems more like small movements rather than pressure per se. 
You know, Ernie Eaton, he's a friend of the show and a helicopter pilot, uh, flies regularly in the R-44s. In fact, I had a chance to fly with him once. I asked him about hovering and what it was like, and he made an analogy saying learning how to hover is like learning how to balance on a beach ball. And does that make sense? I mean, does that fit what, what you have experienced in learning how to do that? Well, I can tell you I would never be able to balance on a beach ball, so it's actually easier than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly the first couple of hours of hovering is pretty challenging, but after a while it just kind of um, – you know, it just kind of comes to you and it's, it's almost, you can almost do it while not even thinking about it, which is kind of weird. Um, but yeah, that, that, that to me is actually kind of fun because it's, it's kind of fun to go, Whoa, I can do this in a fairly straight line. <laughs> so it's, it's nice to feel competent and it comes, you know, within a few hours. You know, what I found when I, when I flew with Ernie is, um, you know, I have no, tr- I don't get air sick. I don't have any fear of heights. It doesn't bother me at all when I'm flying. But when I asked him, I'd never hovered in a helicopter. So I asked him if he would hover for me. And as we were hovering there, that's when my fear of heights kicked in. I could feel it in, in, in my, in my, in my gut. I could feel that the typical feeling that I have when I'm, you know, when I have that fear of heights that I don't get in an airplane. But as we were just hanging right in there, it was like, oh, wow. It was just a completely different feeling. Really unusual for me. Wow. Max, any uh, fixed-wing excitement in the recent past? There was one funny story that came out of last week's uh, Vision Jet trip. We were flying somewhere in, uh, I think, from Vegas to Southern California. And the call sign of the aircraft is 33 Alpha Hotel. And one of the controllers uh, called us 33 Alpha Heavy. And we just thought that was hysterical (laughs) because there we are in the absolute smallest, lightest jet in the sky with a designation for the heaviest of all aircraft. And we, we just really cracked up when he said that. And we don't know for sure, was that just a mistake you know, on his part or was he just being funny or, you know, was it, yeah, yeah we, we don't know, but it was hilarious. <laughs> and I just thought henceforth he should uh, refer to himself as three alpha heavy. <laughs> okay. All right. Micah, have you got something for us? Well, yeah, a couple of things. Um, Last week, as this airs, this will come out on Wednesday, the Wednesday before May 17th was the inaugural flight of Breeze Airways up here into the Portland Jetport, PWM, and I was invited to attend that. And it was a great, fun morning, a wonderful time. Uh, Breeze is going to be flying uh, regularly, year-round, nonstop from uh, Portland to Tampa, which is one of our top five destinations from here in Portland, and uh, and also Portland down to Charleston nonstop, which uh, it'll be offering the only nonstop service into Charleston. And then there'll be some other flights. And... Um, I got to talk with our good friend Paul Bradbury, the Jetport director, and some people from Breeze. And uh, I think uh, our listeners, if they're interested in that, will be able to learn more about that next week. Very good. And then in other news, and uh, just just got uh, confirmed, God willing, in the creek don't rise, that uh, our good friend, listener uh, J.D. Goldstein, who we met last year at the uh, Spurring Farm uh, Pancake Breakfast and Flying Max, uh, I'm going to be going down to New Jersey that uh, first and second week in June, and uh, J.D.'s going to pick me up in his beautiful Cessna 177, and if things work out and he can do that, then we'll probably be flying down to visit David at uh, at his airport and his museum. So... Uh, we're looking forward to that. That was a beautiful airplane. Wasn't that gorgeous? I'd never seen a Cardinal before, and boy, does it look sleek. Not having that wing stretch just turns it into something special. Yeah. All right, we have a few announcements and some shout-outs. Uh, first, uh, on the unhappy side, uh, we just learned that uh, Brian Scholl, the 
guest, our guest from episode 375, uh, passed away on May 20th, 2023. You may recall he was a SR-71 pilot, um, had a, an amazing life story. Uh, he was an Air Force pilot. Uh, he was uh, shot down in uh, in Vietnam, uh, crashed in a in a big fireball. Was kind of trapped in his burning aircraft. Managed to live through that, but with some severe burns. Um, he was rescued by a, I guess, by a special forces group before the Viet Cong got to him, and uh, he was um, uh, taken back to a hospital. And it was presumed that he would not survive because his injuries were uh, were so bad. And uh, but he did. He ended up spending a year in the hospital. Finally got out. Uh, becomes a uh, a Top Gun um, instructor. Flew some uh, other aircraft and eventually became an SR seventy one spy plane pilot. Uh, just an amazing amazing story. In more recent years, I know he uh, he was kind of a a motivational speaker, and uh, of course he was a photographer. Also, has some just some really impressive uh, aviation photos, and uh, so it, sadly he uh, he passed a few days ago. I read in uh, in one uh, account that it was a cardiac arrest, uh, but uh, he was seventy five years old. Brian Scholl. His book is truly amazing. Um, was that a presentation he gave and? The, the reason he had so you know so many uh, SR seventy one Blackbird uh, photos is at the time you needed to have a a written authorization to take a camera you know into the the Blackbird and virtually nobody went to the trouble to do it and yet he did it over and over and over again so he probably is responsible for over ninety percent of all the photos ever taken of these aircraft in flight. Yeah, I invite you to go back and listen to it. Uh, as I said, it's episode 375, so you can find that at airplanegeeks.com slash 375. That'll take you right to the show notes for that episode. You might want to listen to that. I know um, every time I hear Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I immediately think of him because he's told the story what, that uh, as he was laying in that hospital, you know, suffering these horrible burns— and kind of kind of giving up on life as as i think you as could be expected when you're in in that kind of a condition in that kind of a situation and he tells a story of uh, i guess through like an open window of the the hospital room hearing children playing outside and then uh and then the the sounds of Judy Garland's somewhere over the rainbow and he kind of had well it was a moment when he decided that, you know, life was worth living and he was going to fight for his his survival. And uh, as I mentioned, every time I hear that song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, I think of Brian Scholl. And I think I always will. All right. Um, on a happier note, um, Micah, you mentioned a uh, another podcast that you found to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I was listening to NPR, and I, this, they happened to repeat this podcast on NPR, and it's uh, a History Channel podcast, actually. It's called History This Week, the History This Week podcast. 
And the episode from Monday, May 1st is about the world's first budget airline. The title is World's First Budget Airline Takes Off. And it's a great podcast. It's about the history of PSA, that's Pacific Southwest Airlines, and Southwest Airlines, and how they were able to uh, come through and be a budget airline that not regulated and how their existence created deregulation back in the uh, in the 70s fantastic all right we'll put a link to that in the show notes we're gonna have a lot of links in the show notes this episode so be sure you uh, check that out there's a lot of good material in there um i saw an item in linkedin i'm not always the best at keeping up with linkedin i will admit but i did see this from bill barry our uh, friend, past guest, former, you know, now retired chief historian at NASA. And uh, he mentioned that he's honored to be named by the Society for History in Federal Government as the 2023 Roger Trask Award winner. And that means he's going to be delivering the Trask Lecture at that organization's annual meeting. It's on June 2nd at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. So you might want to check that out. So this Roger R. Trask Award, it's presented to people whose careers and achievements reflect a commitment to and an understanding of the unique importance of federal history work in the SHFG's mission. Then the lecture is given annually at the Society's Conference and published in the next issue of the journal Federal History. So in its announcement, uh, they said the society is pleased to honor Dr. William Barry as the 2023 Trask awardee in recognition of his innumerable contributions to federal history as NASA's chief historian. As detailed in his award nomination, Dr. Barry taught or brought NASA's history program fully into the 21st century and exhibited an open and inviting leadership style. This is, uh, this is just great. His innovative efforts to forge creative partnerships within NASA and with the international and private entities to broadly share the remarkable saga of space exploration provide an excellent example of a successful federal history program. So congratulations to our, uh, our friend Bill Barry. So well-deserved. Great yeah, work, Bill. And... Uh, Congratulations, and thanks for being a friend of the show and just a friend in general. What a terrific guy he is. Yeah, he is. He is. And of course, he's uh, uh, grown as a, a fan of gliders. Um, I did have an occasion to to meet him at a, um, a glider event a couple of years ago in upstate New York. Uh, what is that? Elmira? No. That's so. it. Is Elmira? Horseheads. Horseheads. Is that where? Uh, yeah. Elmira, that, yep. Yep, that's what I thought. National Gliding Gliding Center. Yeah, and they have a nice museum there too, a gliding a gliding museum. All right. Um, next item from the National Air and Space Museum. So the annual Innovations in Flight, now titled Outdoor Aviation Display, is uh, on again this year. That's June seventeenth, Saturday. It's from ten a.m. to three p.m. It's at the Stephen F. Udvar-Hazy Center, as always, in Chantilly, Virginia, which is right adjacent to Dulles Airport. And they say over uh, fifty vintage, modern, and commercial aircraft, including Hillel's, will uh, fly in for the day and be on display outside the center. Uh, there's uh, scheduled to appear a C-17 from the four hundred nope from the five hundred and fourteenth Air Mobility Wing. 
You're going to have a Bell UH-1 Iroquois, uh, some aircraft from the Naval Test Pilot School, such as a T-6B Texan II, a Bell H-58, and a C-26 A-STARS III. I think that was the plane that was there a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. As well as a variety of uh, civil, uh, yeah, civilian aircraft. So it's just like before. Well, it's just like the last few years, um, which changed with the pandemic. Again, there's no indoor uh, exhibitors like we did for what ten, twelve years um, before the uh, the pandemic. So uh, you do have access to the museum if you've never been to the Udvarhazy Center. Uh, National Air and Space Museum, you must go. If you have any children uh, that are yours, that are the neighbors, or that you find along the street on the way, drag them into the car and take them take them with you because they will be astounded as you will be. Get permission first. You know, if you, especially if you steal someone else's kids. Uh, again, I'm like uh, the last two years, I guess. Uh, there's uh, the tickets are free. Parking is, well, it used to be, what, $15, I think? Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, so there's a, that fee per vehicle. Um, they're timed entry tickets, and they can be reserved online now. So we'll have a link in the show notes. And it's worth it to go down there just to see Hillel, if nothing else. I know. Say say hi. I won't be there because I will be, like, traipsing across the uh, northern United States uh, but, uh, yeah, do it. If you've never been there, do it. If you've been there, do it anyway. Uh, also, uh, another item, the 2023 Aerospace Media Awards list of finalists is available. Another link for the show notes. And um, our uh, our friend John Ostrauer, his Air Current, the Air Current, is shortlisted for six awards, uh, including the Aerospace Reporter of the Year Award. John Ostrauer is a uh, contender for that. Some of the other guys that are other folks that write uh, with him are in there um, as well for some other other awards. Um, the um, Well, the list is long. There are a lot of categories here. Um, the Best Digital Submission, which is sponsored by McKinsey & Company, uh, includes podcasts, video reports, and social media submissions. And uh, Aviation Week's Check 6 podcast, you may be familiar with that, is one of the finalists. Many, many um, finalists in this. And um, we'll, uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can, you can check that out. Uh, this is the 10th anniversary, anniversary of the awards. Those will be presented in Paris on June 18th at the Aero Club of France in, uh, in Paris. So one more item uh, before we move on to some listener mail is uh, something we talked about last week, uh, our little hiatus for the summer months, uh, June and July anyway. And it's not, it's not a complete hiatus. We're not going to disappear. So uh, as I think I mentioned last episode, what we're doing is, is we're going back into the archives of the uh, Airplane Geeks podcast and pulling out some interviews and interesting episodes, and we're going to republish those as uh, upcome as episodes that are uh, going to be coming up over the next couple of months, so you'll have something to listen to. If uh, well, if uh, if you haven't been with us since the beginning, especially some of these things will be new to you, and some of them will be so many years uh, ago that uh, even if you uh, listen to them when originally published, uh, it'll uh, 
it'd be worthwhile listening again. And we'll have a couple of uh, new pieces out there, too, as as I recall. Uh, next week will be uh, new material, and we may even have one uh, the week after that. That's right. So uh, stay subscribed. And they'll be shorter, generally, quite a bit shorter than our usual full target length of 90 minutes. And it'll be a good chance to get caught up for those of you who are behind. And if the audio quality is a little different on some of them, it's because they're from so long ago. We were using completely different technology. Oh, yeah. Some of these old ones, if you go back and listen to them, it's I'd forgotten how far we'd come in terms of uh, production values on the show. Some of them are, well, they're, they're not our best uh, you know, audio engineering work, that's for sure. Uh, but the content's good. All right. Listener mail. So this is an interesting story. This came from Adam. Uh, who says, first and foremost, thank you for your podcast and the weekly efforts that make me smile along with your wonderful stories. He says, uh, I'm a teacher and av geek who lives near Ramstein, Germany. Uh, he says, aviation has always been a passion. Uh, in my parents' report, I first flew when I was eight weeks old. And he talks about that flight. And he's flown on a number of different uh, aircraft, 707, A310, A350 this summer. And so... Uh, uh, you know, several others. He says his uh, favorite, rarest, was my favorite, a VC-10 on uh, BA. That was flight to Hong Kong. The VC-10, uh, Micah, that's, um, I mean, that's such a classic aircraft, isn't it? It's a beautiful aircraft with uh, four engines in the rear, kind of like an old MD-90 or DC-9, but with four engines, and it was quiet, and it was big, and a real competitor with the 707. And if you're interested in learning more about the VC-10, it just worked out perfectly that uh, our good friend uh, Peter Johnson and his podcast, Aviation Extended, episode 172, I think it's out this week, just did one called VC Tenderness. And I listened to it today, and it's beautiful. And it's a gorgeous airplane. I, I got to see one once when I was at the Brooklyn's Museum in the UK, and I wish I could have flown on one. And, of course, there's another link for the show notes to the Aviation Extended episode. And, yeah, the coincidence is kind of uh, – I wonder if it is a coincidence. But anyway, Adam uh, continues that he's writing – with summer approaching, and he said in your talk uh, last episode about taking a summer hiatus, he says, early in my teaching career, I needed to make extra money with summer jobs. So here's a story that uh, details the best summer job I ever had. And so – Adam starts off, early in my teaching career, I needed to supplement my income by working summer jobs, working in restaurants, call centers, and grading standardized tests were all jobs I held. One consideration with these jobs was making sure the job did not interfere with soccer tournaments, uh, football. It's, uh, it's a big passion of his. Um, didn't interfere with the tournaments that would be taking place many summers most notably World Cups. In 1998, the World Cup was in France, and the games were on U.S. TV later in the mornings and then in the afternoons. So a job outside these times was essential, he says. Subsequently, I found a summer job that had the hours from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., five days a week. Now, you may know what this job would be because there aren't too many jobs with those hours in those days. Um, so this was unloading planes for UPS at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport. 
So, for two months, I got up at the bleak hour of 3.30, made it to work by 3.55. At the job, we unloaded two 757s and one prop, which flew in from Asheville. Of course, as an av geek dating back to my youth, it was a thrill to work among the planes. One day, due to some industrial action, I was fortunate to work in the belly of a DC-8. I was lucky to have flown on one of those on Japan Airlines as a child from Tokyo to Hong Kong. Adam says, Many days the best part of the job dealt with the prop that was often delayed due to fog out of Asheville. Most of the employees unloading the planes were people who held regular 9-to-5 jobs, and they needed to leave at 7 a.m. to be at their regular jobs. However, given my situation, I didn't necessarily have anywhere to be and could wait on the prop where I would unload the handful of boxes and sort them before leaving for the day. As I waited on the prop, I was able to watch planes take off and land from runway 36 right, making $16 an hour to do what I loved. I couldn't think of a better way to spend part of the summer. And that's Adam's summer employment story. What a plane spotter. That's a great story. All right. Uh, Next up. Ah, yes. uh, Aaron wrote. He says, hey, you don't know me, but we've been friends for more than three years. I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning of the pandemic, dreaming of going back to the sky, which we all did. Well, at least I did. Anyway, I'm Aaron from Tel Aviv, actually one of its suburbs, but it doesn't matter. In the last episode, you asked for a flight logger. And I would like to suggest the one I'm using. I've been logging all my flights since uh, there since I was 11. I have a few more from when I was younger, but my parents couldn't help with the important details like the tail numbers or even the basics like the aircraft model. The logger begins to Flight Radar 24. They acquired it from a startup several years ago. And he's got a link to it, which is just simply my.com flightradar24.com. You can input every flight you've ever taken and get statistics like the most popular route, airport, aircraft, and more. You can also see all your flights on a map, which is very cool. He sends a screenshot of his map. So he says, uh, thanks again for the podcast and keep the blue side up. And I had not been familiar with this. I'm surprised I had not been familiar. This is a great way if you want to do what our... uh, uh, you know, young uh, uh, listener, or 12-year-old, I think, listener uh, from a few episodes ago uh, was looking to do a place where you can record all the commercial flight, all the flights you take. Uh, and this is great on a map because it shows graphically the origin and destination. Um, and it's got the statistics of the flights. And this is just a really, really handy, handy way to do that. So uh, thank uh, Aaron for suggesting that. The uh, the Flighty app does that for you too. It's uh, that uh, Brian and I did an interview with Brian who who uh, created the app, and that app will track your flights ahead of time, and you plug everything in. It coordinates with your calendar. But anything that you use the Flighty app for, it will save under your flights, and it will have everything that you ever inputted into it, which is just terrific. It's just another nice thing about that particular app. I wish I'd started doing this twenty years ago or something. <laughs> Because I can't remember all the flights. I, I probably can't remember half of the interesting flights I took. And uh, it, w- it would have been such a great thing to have them all 
in one place with all the detail about the flights and when they were and what the aircraft were, all that kind of thing. You know, and Aaron is, I think, at least the uh, at least a third listener from Israel that we have heard from that we uh, have been in communication with semi regularly. Aaron and Alal, and um, I can't remember the name of the other guy, a younger guy. We saw him through high school. We have, of course, we have listeners all over the world, but uh, yeah, we have a number of uh, of fans in Israel, which is which is great. And speaking of fans, so we heard from uh, several. We heard from Kurt and uh, one other listener. And this is, again, on that issue of looking for information on past flights. You know, how do you find out what the flight number was, what the uh, what the equipment was, and all of that stuff? And he suggested a, a, a site that's uh, maintained by the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. And it goes all the way back to 1995, um, now, I, I put in um, that uh, Spirit Airlines flight from, was it 2014, that our listener was trying to find. And I came up a dry. It didn't, it didn't find it at all. But I put in some other flight, other dates. Um, and I did, you know, the flights were in there. So I don't know why that one isn't. But it's uh, on the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. Uh, again, we'll have the, the link in the show notes. But it's uh, www transstats.bts.gov and do slash on time. There's some other flavors of it if you go through the the menu. So we'll have that in the show notes. And then, uh, oh, this is a correction. So somebody, I won't mention who, David, used the term uh-huh. baby bus. <laughs> and uh, Kyle wrote in and said, just a quick correction. The baby bus refers to the Airbus A318, not the 319. The 318 is a rather unpopular, it is shortened model and is not being offered with a Neo option. It's from Kyle in the, in Minneapolis. Yeah, the, the A318 was um, not a successful program. Only, eight, only 80 orders were placed, entered service in July 2003 with Frontier Airlines. Currently, uh, Air France has, looks like, um, nine of them. The Romanian airline, Teram, has four in operation, according to this uh, that I see. And the bulk of them are operated by various governments and are used as executive and, and private jets. But, you know, the, A, uh, the A318 uh, had a very special flight number and a special history. It was Speedbird 1 and Speedbird 2. Mm-hmm. After they retired the Concord... BA still wanted to offer first-class service from uh, London to New York, and uh, they used the A318. They set it up in all business class, and it would take off from London City. But because London City Airport had such short runways, they couldn't have a full fuel load. So they would take off from London City and fly to Shannon, Ireland, where they would refuel, and the passengers would go through customs for the U.S. Customs Air, and then it would fly nonstop from Shannon into JFK. Same thing on the return. Wow. So here's a little bit of trivia about about this the 318. There are there were two engines offered a, a CM a CFM 56 5B and also a Pratt and Whitney PW 6000. Now the the 6000 never went anywhere because the 318 didn't go anywhere. But the trivia is that in uh, Pratt and Whitney's first attempt to build a production geared turbofan engine, they used the the core 
of the PW6000. So the, the GTF traces back, in a way, uh, to uh, an Airbus A318 engine. And then uh, one more, and then we'll close this out. And this is uh, back on pet names. You know, we've been kind of asking people uh, for, uh, oh, Max, you missed this last week, asking people for aviation-themed pet names. And uh, Max started this off with the, the cat Fizdo. And then we had uh, another one last week. And then um, Dave wrote to us and said that uh, Dave's uh, APIA, uh, Julie, has three hanger cats. And they're named Spinner, Champ, and Amelia. I think that's great. No mice in that hanger. That's great. Yeah, not with three cats. <laughs> And I'm so glad we're getting letters from our listeners about cat names like that. What a nice tribute to Fizdo is what I think. I know. Poor little Fizdo. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because I was at the front desk today at the club and I spoke to the the gentleman who works the desk there and uh, he, he was kind of, uh, I mean, I used to think that I was Fizdo's daddy, but he clearly took over because he was there to uh, give him lots of love. And I said, hey, since the, since the management is out this week, why don't you and I go out and find a couple of cats and just bring them in here and tell them we made an executive decision to acquire a couple more. There you go. So when Dave mentioned uh, his APIA Julie I knew what the AP meant right AP A&P airframe and power plant mechanic but I didn't know what an A rather an IA designation meant I had to look it up Max what's an IA that would be the next step step up which would be inspector authority so a mechanic who has the uh, ability basically to uh, sign off the work of uh, other mechanics and I actually found the uh, um, some of the relevant uh, requirements in the FAR Part 65.91, which I thought was kind of interesting. Applicants must meet that FAR, which includes, and here's the three requirements, possessing an FAA A&P rating for three years. So you have to have your A&P for three years before you can get the IA. And being engaged in maintaining aircraft for two years prior to the date of your application you have to have a fixed base of operation. And third, you have to have the equipment, facilities, and inspection data available to properly perform inspection authorization or IA duties and functions. So that's how uh, an A&P can get the IA rating. See, you learn something new every episode on this podcast. That's what's fun about aviation. It's just kind of unlimited in terms of things to do a deep dive into. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We really appreciate it. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. You can find the rather extensive show notes and with lots of links from this episode at airplanegeeks.com slash 750 for the episode number. And our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right. Max Trescott, any closing uh, brilliance to impart upon us? Well, when I am not uh, rotoring at the Hayward Airport, you can find me at aviationnewstalk.com. Just click on contact at the top of the page and shoot me an email. All right. And David Vanderhoof, where do we find you? Well, you can find me hanging around helicopters at the American Helicopter Museum. Almost as much time as Max Trescott spends with vision jets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, of course, you can find me anywhere you want as long as you can spell Vanderhoof. 
All right. And the American Helicopter Museum is located in Westchester, Pennsylvania at Brandywine Regional Airport, which is KOQN. Very good. All right, Micah, thanks for joining us this episode. Where can we find you or anything else you'd like to uh, mention? Well, thanks for having me along. And you can find me along with uh, Pasadena Brian Coleman, our former associate producer on the Journey is Reward podcast. And that's thejourneyisreward.net. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm still there. I may be the only one, but I'm there. And I'm at MaineFly, M-A-I-N-E. That's like the state of Maine. And fly like uh, Brian isn't flying as much as he used to. MaineFly. And you know what else, Max, I realized? What? Speaking of cats, we are going to be the Schrodinger's cat of podcasts for the next few weeks. We'll be here, and we won't. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. All right. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me on Twitter, but you know what? I haven't been in Twitter in, like, several months. But you can find me on Mastodon. Look for Max Flight. Uh, You can also find my uh, ridiculously dopey vanity page at 30,000feet.com, where you can see where I hang out online. Also, if you'd like an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. We'll send you a link or an invitation as appropriate. So, please join us again next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. See you in a few months. And thanks for listening. Are you suggesting that the podcast is simultaneously dead and alive? So it seems. <laughs> I was, I I was you, you know, I, these days you can't swing a Schrodinger's cat without hitting a podcaster somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I thought it was a decent analogy.